Hi, I'm Keith McCullough. Welcome to our latest segment of Real Conversations. It's my pleasure and privilege to have Jim LeCamp, who's the Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Macro Portfolio Advisors at UBS to, to have a chat with me today. So, Jim, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time. Keith, it's always fun talking to you. It's always fun talking to somebody who can uh, drill down a little deeper. Yeah, that's, that's what we're going to do here. I think it's a, a great forum and opportunity. There won't be any commercials, nothing like that, Jim, so we could, uh, could kind of get right into the wood. When I turn on the television set, you know, I, I'll be, half the time it's on mute, I could swear that people are saying that it's different this time, that bond yields falling is not a slow growth signal. Do you agree with that? The, I think bond yields are falling for about four reasons. Um, I, I think uh, one reason you could point to is uh, concerns about Russia and the Ukraine. You could point to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could point to short covering. Uh, and certainly there's a big short uh, interest on the treasuries. And uh, that, that was the big trade as we went into January. Buy stocks sell treasuries. It hadn't worked out. Treasuries are up 9% on the year. So there, there has, to be, has to be some short covering. But I really think a big part of it is that the bond market is signaling economic growth is not materializing like we thought it would. And then, Keith, when you look around the world, bond yields are down all over the world. And so if, you, if you're going to pay 5% on 30-year Greek paper, then we should be about 2.5%, <laughs> and that's where we are. So well, I, I, I think it's saying slow global growth, slow U.S. growth. Well, I mean, it, the, the manifestation of slow growth comes from a lot of different angles, so it doesn't surprise me that a pro like you would say, okay, look, there's multiple factors here. It's not a silver bullet. But like when you say, hey, look, the bond market is forecasting X on growth, versus you know, what I affectionately call old Wall Street forecasting Y. Have you seen a divergence this wide, uh, pre-crisis, post-crisis, that's, that's this obvious? The street's looking you for know, 3 to 4% I, I, GDP growth. I, I, I can't remember this many divergences. I mean, when you, when you see the, the bonds do what they do, it should have a bigger impact on the dollar. Uh, mm-hmm. When you see commodities... Uh, doing what they are doing, they should have a different impact on bonds. Uh, when you see what the major averages are doing, uh, they shouldn't be holding up this well if the if the leading uh, components of this market rally are getting shellacked like they are. So I'm seeing a tremendous amount of divergences, but I think that a big part of this is where people were positioned prior to the, these things happening. Yep. So, uh, you, you have a market that, that can really overreact because of the way they were positioned. In other words, big, heavy, short position, and then you get a piece of economic softness that comes in, and the shorts all scramble, and so the bond market overreacts. Well, it's amazing to watch that. I mean, you, if you look at it, you know, just think, if you and I were talking at this time last year, everybody and their brother said that interest rates couldn't rip to the upside, and they did. Uh, that was the big kind of variant move in macro last year. And then you come into this year, and after the move, everybody thinks rates are going higher, and, they, and all they do is go straight down. So I don't think that this has done you know, a lot for old Wall Street's forecasting uh, credibility. But uh, I agree. <laughs> I agree. And, and here's the other thing that's really interesting about this. The Federal Reserve Board has been tapering, and everybody would say, well, uh, yeah, it's the biggest buyer of bonds. We should see those rates start to go up as they taper. But I think a different mindset is taking place. Fed's exiting the market, so maybe there's slower growth, and these yields come back down. And it makes me wonder, Keith, 
if they needed to be doing this at all to begin with, because yeah. here we are uh, cutting this, this program, getting close to cutting it in half, and yields have gone down, not up. I wonder, again, with, with European paper trading where it is, with Japanese paper trading where it is, if we wouldn't be about where we were without all this bond buying program that we've had. Now, you have bond market vigilantes, you have bond market riots, potentially a bond market going straight up, which is currently this year. You have a lot of different scenarios that a lot of people, at least a lot of smart people, didn't predict. Uh, and here we are, no matter where you go. So what happens if growth surprises on the downside, inflation is much more impactful on real human beings than, than the Fed is articulating? Uh, do, do you think by the June meeting that she could get scared and, and start to, again, rhetorically untaper? I think uh, that's, a, that's a very distinct possibility. And at that moment, I think the Fed loses a, uh, any credibility that they might have left. Because really? uh, it would signal that they don't have the control that they've been suggesting that they have. Mm -hmm. And it would also signal that their steps aren't working. And we, we already know that their steps aren't working. i, I got to tell you, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but when I see all these mergers and acquisitions, uh, all, this, all this activity, which could be a record year, I, it makes me real nervous. First of all, this happened in 2000, right before we saw a three-year sell-off in the market, and it happened in 2007. But it points out that Fed policy has made cheap, easy money available to the large and it really hasn't impacted the small. So you have all these mergers and acquisitions because they don't have new customers coming in the front door. They don't have any incentive to build property, plant, equipment, or hire people. Uh, so what do you do if you're a business, if you have cheap and easy money and a high stock price but no new customers? You go buy somebody else's customers. Yeah, and that's, exactly. that's what's happening. So it's another example of how Fed policy has had really some uh, – it's, it's really been good for people like you and I in the business. It's been good for homeowners. But it really hasn't been good for the general economy uh, in terms of uh, spreading out to those that really need it most. If you go back to like Henry Hazlitt or periods in U.S. Uh, economic history that were born out of the same types of things, the 1970s, you call it stagflation or whatever you want, you know, there's an American zeitgeist that develops and then all of a sudden people have kind of had enough. Do you think that the, the current level of inflation relative real-world inflation relative to what the Fed is saying is in the system is providing that kind of catalytic zeitgeist of, of, of angst that's getting people to move? Not yet, but it's building. Um, you're, you're, you're hearing more and more people talk about these things, and, and it's, it's translating to retail sales. And not only that, but you're, you're, you're finally seeing some discussed with the federal government. I mean, the, the, the media shield that is put up around the federal government and, and fiscal policy is starting to get chipped away at uh, almost every day, and they've done most of the damage themselves. But now, now they seem, the emperor finally seems to appear really to have no clothes, even though we've known this for a long time to begin with. So uh, I, I think, yes, I, yeah, and there's a documentary that was out last year. We had uh, the director on our show, uh, Jim Bruce, uh, called Money for Nothing. That mm -hmm. was a documentary about the Fed and, and its failed policies. And it didn't draw any conclusions about what we should do moving forward, but I think the more these things get out there, and as, when, you, when you hit a price point on food prices, when you hit a, a price point on gasoline prices, it, it, it can really happen very quickly. Or when you hit a collective price point. I mean, it's like kind of following, 
you know, a game of three-card Monty at a point because at some point you create the all-time high in corn prices and then they implode. At some point you create the all-time high in gold prices and it implodes. At this juncture we have the all-time high in U.S. rents. The all-time high in U.S. rents. That's, from what I can understand, that's a long time. Um, you know, that's a big number, Jim. <laughs> like it if is, you look at people's mortgage payment, buy a home. exactly. So how do how do they how do how do you read the you know if you go side by side, even the BBC at this point, you can read the headlines where Carney, who's the Canadian that they brought in to deal with these British bureaucrats, he'll say, hey, look, home prices are are prohibitive. You know, for 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 the for for the mainstream population, uh, from both a rent equivalent perspective and in terms of home ownership, and, and at the same time in this country, you know, you're running double digit home price appreciation. Is there is there a voice for that, or is the lobby just too big? Where there's so many people that get paid on home price appreciation that you just people just don't want to talk about. It? Well, that's the way it's been, but I think we're getting very close to that tipping point. Even uh, the headline in the Wall Street Journal, I think, on Monday was that they were going to try to start to re-loosen uh, lending standards. But what they really need to do is get people jobs. <laughs> yeah, loosen them up, loosen them up more. They've been yeah. lending standards have been too tight, uh, and they need to they need to loosen them up. And you're right, it's not a re-loosening; it's a loosening to begin with. And that's why cash buyers have have been stomping yeah. all over uh, those that that can uh, that are trying to go out and get a loan and do the right thing. But um, I, so I think that happens. And I want to point out too that and people don't realize. On this about this on a historical basis, but if you look at the Arab Spring, and if you look at all the uprisings you've had in the Arab world, you can overlay those with a chart on spiking food prices nearly every single time. And I'm not saying that would happen here. I'm saying that these tipping points happen very, very fast, and that we could get there uh, very quickly in this country because, again, we're already seeing it start to show up in retail sales. The jobs market has been very, very sticky, and uh, this this is the kind of of, of stew that creates the, that creates this, and it happens very quickly. Now, do you talk to anyone, and I mean anyone that you respect? That, you know, obviously, it can be anyone in any walk of life uh, that disagrees with that. Um, sure. I mean, you're going to find some people out there that, that will point out that the economy has been growing uh, for five years. Most of them are apologists or spin doctors and, and people that de- de- defend what the Fed is doing. And, and, and Ben Bernanke would defend. But even those that defend will admit things are not where we want them to be. It's the, it's the slowest recovery on record. Uh, it's the slowest jobs recovery on record, and now, as we're talking about, we're seeing increasing prices. And unfortunately, I think it's too complicated of a subject for most people to understand that Fed policy weighs into this, and how exactly fiscal policy weighs into it. But um, yeah, well, that, I mean, that's part of the problem. I mean, it, it, you can ob- like anything. Um, you know, religions have been built on this. You can obfuscate pretty much anything through complication. So at the end of the day, you know. Isn't the question? Is it so obvious that they're lying to me as an American through my cost of living that I'm just not going to listen to the obfuscation and the sophistication anymore? Yeah, and I think it'll happen because what'll happen is as retail sales continue to be soft or weak, and it, and again, if these food prices keep going up and rent prices and uh, gasoline prices, then retail sales are going to continue to be weak. And once once that really starts to hit the bottom line. 
of these businesses, um, and they start um, they start railing on uh, the, their respective congressmen that they've been uh, funding through political action committees and all these other things. It'll have an impact. People will lose elections. Then it'll have an impact. But it may it may be another year or two. I think you're going to see some change out of this coming election. I think you're going to see a big change in the makeup of Congress, and that'll help address some of the fiscal policy issues. Uh, but in, in terms of the Fed, it, it, that's a tough one. So you're saying you need to have a political change, or you're just going to get more of what you've had for a decade? Well, I don't, I don't see how you're going to get jobs traction with the, the most complicated tax code in the world, um, with um, this, this uh, uncertainty still over Obamacare, um, over uh, pressure to raise minimum wage at a time when you've got a huge oversupply of uh, unskilled workers to begin with. Um, It's it's hard for me. Well, that last one in particular is the answer. You know, if you have a policy to inflate and you're Bush and Obama and you both had Bernanke effectively uh, or the second coming of Bernanke now with Yellen and you have that policy to inflate but you don't call it that, the only way to cover yourself is to raise wages and mandate it. That's, that's also part of you know, a socialist policy. So, you know, I, I don't doubt for two seconds that you go there. But, again, I think if you throw too many things, at the, you know, including the kitchen sink, at the argument, you start to lose people. Um, and why don't we just make it really simple? Like, the value of the dollar goes down, the cost of living goes up. This has been happening for 10 years, going on 12. And if you look at the secular chart that is U.S. consumption, it's making a series of lower highs and lower lows. You can see that it's heading on a road to perdition. So isn't that just the answer? Yeah, that was the, uh, that was the Grecian formula. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're moving uh, down the same uh, road to, to, to Damascus uh, that, that they did. We're just doing it a little bit slower. But you can see what has happened, what, what the net result has been, and it goes well beyond 10 to 12 years. It goes all the way back to the formation of the Fed and what, what the value of the dollar has done since then. And then you compare the relative price stability of the dollar pre-Fed to post-Fed. It's not a very pretty picture. If you have people that are looking for 3 to 4% GDP growth, if you really boil down their thesis, it's down to this resurgent CapEx cycle that you had in the mid-1990s. And I keep saying, newsflash, in the mid-1990s, the Federal Reserve went both ways. Greenspan raised rates by 50 basis points at a time and forced people to invest. We're in an environment where they force you basically, I think what you said earlier is the Fed's forcing you to disinvest. Yes, they are. And, 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 and they've, they've really neutered uh, many, many components of our economy as well. Um, if you look, at, look at what happened, has happened to seniors under Fed policy. Oh, my God. They, you know, they, they're, they're forced to live on unbelievably low fixed income rates or take risk in the stock market when they're at a stage in their life when they'd probably rather not take that risk. And what's going to happen when the stocks sell off? Uh, what's going to happen to this group that, that have been forced to take risks they didn't want to make and or to, uh, to take, and then all of a sudden the market's not providing the returns, and yet food prices are higher and uh, the the cola increases that they're getting from social security aren't aren't keeping up at all with rents gasoline food uh it, it's really been very very difficult yeah, cola is it for those of you who don't know that's cost of living adjustments it's a complete jo- it's basically a lie um you know one of, one of your tweets and by the way if you don't follow jim on twitter it's market Cam- it's at market camper right jim on your on your Twitter handle, uh, what I love about your your tweets is that you, you you use these great quotes. And one of your quotes on this front um, 
hurting people with the truth is better than killing them with a lie. Now, it's very appropriate in this, in this environment, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, is it really a lie? Or are we being, you know, are, are we being alarmist Look about no this? Look no further than the CPI. Can, can, is, is there anybody out there that would say that the CPI is running at the rate that, that their inflation rate is running at the rate that the government says they are. One, yeah, 1.3 percent. <laughs> yeah, there is not a chance in Hades that people feel that way when they look at what they're spending money on. And there's not on. a chance in Hades. I like that. When you look at um, how they calculate the unemployment rate versus how they calculated it back in 1980, and, and if you take that misery index that you took, that you did in 1980 with Jimmy Carter as president, uh, right before or, or with, right before Reagan took over uh, the, the presidency, uh, that misery index was really high. Well, if they calculated these things, inflation and unemployment today, the way they did back then, it would be higher now than it was during the Jimmy Carter years. What's interesting is that even the Keynesian economists are challenging the Keynesian economists. MIT's Billion Prices Project now calculates inflation at a, almost like a three-bagger versus what the U.S. government calculates at. So, you know, with that number, 3.9% CPI, which I still think is relatively low, that's the MIT number, you'd be running negative 2% GDP right now. Yeah, and that's why it's so it's so hysterical when I see all these GDS, GDP estimates that we were going to get four percent. If we were going to get four percent real GDP at some point, uh, you're, you've got a lot to overcome with it. With the reading we got in the first quarter, you've got, you're you're way way behind there. I think it's like mathematically impossible. I mean, the way that the government calculates in, uh, GDP, by the way, they have to adjust for this thing called the deflator. And the deflator last year, with commodity prices having hit a two and a half year low. Uh, was re- basically the deflator was running close to a 40-year low. So, you know, the deflator is going up, and newsflash, that's going to be subtracted from GDP. So, you know, I, I, I would be shocked if we have four, three, never mind 4%, you know, GDP growth, and it sounds like you're on the same page. On that. Yeah, it's like you pull up to uh, somebody in a small town and you ask them uh, how to get to uh, the, the city hall, and they say, well, you, you just can't get there from here. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way we feel right now about it. Well, I, like, look, I mean, that's why, that's, that, that's why I love to hear your comments. I mean, you just boil it down to reality, and uh, that's what we're trying to do here. You know, I'm certainly not aspiring to be a Ph.D. economist at this point in my career. I don't think you are either. Uh, well, I, I would like to, let, me, let me just point out that Keynesians don't even know what, Keynesians, what Keynes said. He said to pay down debt in the, in the good years, to pay it off. And and then if you need to use it in the bad years to offset. Now I don't agree with that to begin with. But even if I did agree with that, um, then you are looking at um, a government here that doesn't pay down debt in good years. We did uh, we did briefly in the in the uh, uh, Clinton administration, but when we were doing well in in all the other years, all we did was raise our debt. So even those that would defend Keynesian economics don't even understand Keynesian economics. Well, I, I think uh, Bernanke. I mean Bernanke makes Keynes look like a raging conservative. I mean. Yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, Bernanke says now that you, 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 you've established all these great successes in the economy, never mind pay down debt, why don't you lever that debt up multiple times and throw some pick toggle bond action on that thing? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's basically telling you to, to, to lever, put leverage upon leverage. I mean, that's what he's trying to do, to, to replicate something above 0% interest rates. 
and and the balance, the Fed's balance sheet would have been wiped out several times already, uh, based on how levered they are in any interest spike that we've had. Uh, if you would if you would apply mark to market to the Fed's balance sheet, they'd be bankrupt. But they they move it over to the now that that can't yet. happen though. Uh, ben today again at the two hundred thousand dollar breakfast or whatever it was said. Uh, that the Fed doesn't actually have to change the balance sheet, Jim. They, they can keep it you know, dead-pinned right where it is, and we're going to like it. <laughs> well, yeah, the stock market has liked it, but I think the stock market is starting to uh, suffer from some uh, apostasy here because uh, the stock market is, uh, is struggling now, and they don't know what to make out of the Fed. Uh, you're, you're, getting, you're going all Texas on me. I don't even know what apostasy yeah, means. That mean, you're, pretty... losing, you're losing your religion. Oh, man, that is, I love that. That's good. That's really good apostasy. Now, we, we've had a fun discussion. I just want to give you a shot uh, to end where we started with a little, uh, little question on music. So if you had to name uh, the top song that represents the Federal Reserve in country music today or, or you know, yesterday, what would it be? <laughs> I'd have to go with Friends in Low Places. <laughs> 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 Friends in Low Places by Garth Brooks. Yeah, yeah that, it's it's a classic, but it is certainly it certainly applies. Yeah, that is a beauty. From the hockey dressing rooms in uh, northern Canada to to where you're at in Texas, we would timestamp that song as a dandy. <laughs> but thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, thanks so taking much. the time. Really enjoyed it. All right, take care. That was Jim LeCamp. Uh, this was a real conversation. If you have any questions for me, I'm at Keith McCullough. And you can find Jim at Market Camper on his Twitter handle. Thank you for listening to this edition of HedgeEye's Real Conversations. If you enjoyed this interview, we encourage you to subscribe to HedgeEye Podcasts for automatic downloads of future interviews with top market and economic thought leaders. You can also visit HedgeEye.com for additional content. There you can learn more about our financial research firm's comprehensive market research products and complimentary videos and analysis. The proceeding has been presented for informational purposes only, and none of the information contained herein constitutes a solicitation, offer, opinion, or recommendation by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guest speakers to buy or sell any security or to provide legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice regarding the profitability or suitability of any security or investment. Opinions and analysis are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can and may go up or down based on any number of factors. Consult your financial professional before investing.